Welcome to the Phoenix Cast, a podcast about cybersecurity, technology, and innovation issues in the military. We are your hosts, John. And Kyle. I'm a U.S. Marine, and the opinions expressed on the cast are my own, not official military policy. And the opinions expressed by me are also my own, not those of my employer or any other businesses I happen to be associated with. For today's episode, we're joined by special guest, Colonel Jason Quinner, G6 for 3rd Maw. Jason, thanks so much for coming on the cast. Could you give us an intro? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my name is Colonel Jason Quinner. Um, I joined 3rd Mall this past summer um, as the Assistant Chief of Staff G6. Um, my previous billet was in the Joint Staff J6, um, where I served in the integration as the Integration Branch Chief in Requirements Division. Um, so while I was there, I primarily worked as the National Strategist for the J6 and as a Requirements Manager. Um, and I was in the uh, what we call the C4 cyber functional capabilities board working group. So if you if you have a major acquisition program that you're needing to take to the JROC and it's C4 cyber related or it has a net ready KPP, it would come through it would come through our office. Um, so for the tiers I was there in that assignment, I worked predominantly on the, the joint all domain command and control strategy and the national military strategy, um, along with all the other chairman battle rhythm events that you do when you're when you're a lieutenant colonel in the Pentagon. Um, so my billet there offered me a pretty unique opportunity to see what material solutions the military services were were delivering, or I would say attempting to deliver um, to the JROC, and in an attempt to what we say sense make sense and act at machine speed to actually achieve JADC two. So Jason, thanks so much for coming on the cast. I got a quick question that I want to ask you as someone from the outside looking in. When you say requirements manager, help me understand what that role particularly is because it's it's critical. And I want to make sure that everyone listening on the cast right now is centered around what that role is. Yeah, that's that's a good question. So, um, you know, a lot of people confuse requirements with acquisitions. They're not the same thing. Obviously, yep. acquisition yep. law is, is uh, what drives acquisitions. But, you know, in order to develop a requirement, you know, if you have an idea, for instance, um, we use the JSIDS manual um, and we have to walk that requirements development through um through the process from start to finish. And, you know, sometimes it, it could take years, but you have an initial capabilities document and then, a, and then a CDD. And then eventually you get to like prototyping for instance, you know, and there's different technology readiness levels. And then eventually when it's all said and done, um, some stuff could be approved at the service level and some stuff's got to go all the way to the vice chairman of the joint chiefs of staff through the JROC. So that, hopefully that's helpful. <laughs> Okay, yeah. So in the civilian world, we'd probably call that like a very, very senior product manager of like some secret squirrel mission that some company was trying to get out. And I would generally describe that as the person who wrangles all of the cats and all of the chaos to turn someone's dream into reality. You think that's a fair statement? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you could you, okay. could, you could use like a major a major acquisition program like F-35, for instance. You know, somebody has to determine yep. like how fast that jet could fly. Um, amongst other things, there's different characteristics that we, that the jet needs to have in order, you know, and uh, the sensor payload, um, you name it. Um, <clears throat> if there's anything in particular that the military needs, when they bid out for the contract, they need to be very specific in the ICD and then in the CDD for what it is they they're demanding or what, the, what they want. They have to be specific about what they're paying for, essentially. All right, and one uh, one thing I wanted to break in and mention also. Uh, I have known Jason for over 20 years now. He was actually the first communications officer that I met in the Marine Corps. Yeah. Whoa. 
Yeah. <laughs> yep. And as a former commo, you know, that, so. that's a, a pretty interesting thing for me. So, so John, is it fair to say that Jason is your inspiration? He's the one who gave you wings. <laughs> I mean, he's, he is, he's the first one I met and, and I would say somewhat tragically, the only communications officer, at least at the time that I knew of in EWS. So, um, yeah, I think he's, he served as a great model and, uh, that gave me, uh, kind of like my, Hey, this is, this is what a combo is like. Um, but he was one of one, you know what I mean? Like talk about a lot of pressure. You know what I mean? Every single, every single comma was kind of <laughs> like, is this, is this what I want to do or whatever? And he had, he had the burden of explaining and modeling that for, you know, hundreds of second lieutenants. Funny. <laughs> Blast from the past. So, so funny. Yes. Blast from the past. <laughs> so uh, before we get into the the big meat of this stuff, uh, you mentioned JADC2, and we are going to talk a bunch about that. Uh, one more time, the acronym for JADC2, and for someone who does not serve as the joint requirements owner in the Pentagon for this, what is a layperson's what this means to us? Okay. So, I mean, I think I'd, it's it stands for Joint All Domain Command and Control. That's what the acronym stands for. But you know, I, I think it's important to say this. I mean, when I was in the J6, like JADC2 means different things to different people. And I could say that with confidence. I mean, I, um, I would talk to people from the different services from there. Like in our case, it would be combat development and integration, um, specifically down in Quantico. And, you know, it was funny when we, when we first wrote the strategy, people were, people were teasing us. So like, you guys don't even know if this is a noun or a verb, you know, and what are you talking about? And, um, you know, I would say if, if interoperability and the fundamental nature of like jointness wasn't important or, or if we were doing it really, really well, we wouldn't need a JADC2 strategy. You know, um, you go back to Goldwater Nichols. It's been quite some time now, uh, you know, almost 40 years, I guess, if you if you not quite, but almost 40 years since Goldwater Nichols. And we're still not as good as we should be at joint in, in the command and control sphere um, that really uh, rears its ugly head. So you know, we have a strategy and then um, we also have an implementation plan and then we have what's called a reference architecture. So essentially, JADC2 is an attempt to revolutionize the OODA loop. And so, you know, our younger audience on the podcast, um, you know, you go to Corporal's course and, and you start learning. I'm, I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure that that's exactly where you start learning it in your Marine Corps education, but you learn about the John Boyd's OODA loop and observe, orient, decide, act. Um, JADC2 is kind of a modern take on the OODA loop. You know, it's sense, make sense, and act. Um, and at, at the speed of relevance, meaning like what you're, you're in competition against an adversary. And what you're trying to do is sense, make sense, and act faster than your adversary. And so it's fundamentally about kill chains, right? Um, so the speed of relevance today is what we call machine speed. And machines today can far surpass human cognition. And I think that's a really important point is you know, when you start talking about team done man teaming, um, the third offset strategy that, that uh, Secretary Work used to talk about, um, you know, team done man teaming means you're if you're in a manned aircraft and you're fighting against an unmanned aircraft, you're basically using your human cognition and your 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 adversary is thinking at machine speed. Uh, essentially, it's a computer or robotics, for instance. So that's an important distinction. Um, the offset strategy is focused on like operational or cam- campaign level advantage. Um, as, as like the, the way to underwrite conventional deterrence. So in terms of um, all domain command and control, we're attempting to use, in our case in the Marine Corps, McSense, for instance, to help close kill chains faster than our adversaries. 
So obviously the way we, we aim to do that is by automating certain tasks, uh, which we refer to as autonomous or, or, or semi-autonomous warfare. I think a, an important distinction there is we're not really ready for uh, fully autonomous warfare yet. Yeah. And I think two, two points, one, probably just like the banking system and they didn't get rid of everybody on the floor at wall street. They just aided and enhanced the human decision-making with machines. I would imagine we're essentially going to use machines to help us cycle the OODA loop faster. Um, but Jason, I want to make sure that we kind of define out and keep the audience along with us here. So when you say kill chains, what do you mean by that? So, um, you know, essentially, the kill chain is like a military concept that identifies, you know, the structure of an attack. So you've got, you know, first you need to identify the target. Um, and then next you can, disp- you know, employ forces on the target, right? And then initiate an attack on the target and then destroy the target. And so if you think about it that way, identify- identification of the target is really the first two por- parts of JADT2. That's your sense and make sense. You know, you, you could have a, for instance, an MQ-9 or something like that. It's sensing something happening in the battle space, you know, and then you're trying to get that data back to um, the decision maker for them to make sense of it. In this case, we'd be making sense of it with machines, um, artificial intelligence and machine learning. And then the rest of that kill chain is all action, right? It's like driving on the objective and then accomplishing the objective. Um, and the, in most cases, destroying a target. Um, does that help? Absolutely. Thank you. So, yeah, I, I would just add a couple more things there. I, I'd say, um, you know, it's technology really that changes the character of war. Um, we, as Marines, we, you know, you can read about that in, in MCDP-1, you know, our cornerstone document in the Marine Corps, which is still relevant today. It's technology that changes the face of war. You can go all the way back to, you know, the Peace of Westphalia in 1648 and without going through every single change, you know, Creeping artillery barrage, the invention of machine guns, hand grenades, flamethrowers, tanks, maneuver warfare, all the way to today. Um, and once again, it's technology that, that we're predicting is going to change the face of warfare. And, and by that, I mean cloud, AI, machine learning, data centricity, um, service-oriented architecture. Um, so our network, it, once it's cloud-enabled, you know, infrastructure, platform, and software as a service, and then, you know, for, at Marfor Cyber, a perfect example is, you know, zero trust architecture and ICAM. If you think about the attack surface and how big our networks are getting and how big they're going to be, um, you know, it turns out that in the future, the weakest link in cybersecurity is going to be the human. Um, it's just too much to try to protect. You know, the attack surface is going to be too big. So we need to be able to leverage these, uh, these things at machine speed, these technologies. So I'll stop there. No, and no, I agree with you. I think the I would already argue with anybody that the human is the weakest link in any cyber chain that we have. I think that's been demonstrated a thousand times over. Yeah. So then I want to ask a a pointed question then, Jason. It sounds like what you're talking about is that you're arguing that the the Marine Corps is differentiating itself in cyber by developing software and by developing hardware. Do you think that those two are equally weighted? Do you think that software plays a bigger role? Do you think that hardware is going to be the key? And asking this as the re, uh, you know the requirements manager, like I'm assuming you have deep insight into this. Uh, this is uh, this is a great question. I uh, I was just in the Pentagon two days ago actually talking about this with one of our senior leaders. Um, I mean, I he laughed when I said this, but I would say uh, you know I said you know sir, 
the Marine Corps is a software company that still thinks it's a hardware company. Um, you know, I, what Ooh. I mean by that is I don't mean it to be controversial, but I'll, I'll use, let's pick a programmer record, TBMCS, for instance, since I'm, since I'm in the mall. Um, All right. if I TBMCS, to, acronym check real quick. Uh, theater Battle uh, Command, TB, Theater Battle Command Management System. Sorry. There it is. Boom. Theater, okay. Yeah. Okay. So if, if the Marine Corps were to want, decide to replace TBMCS with like a newer version. Um, I would venture to guess, you know, no guarantees, but I would venture to guess if we did that, what would show up on our doorstep in two more years or three more years or four more years, however long the requirements development process took, um, would be another piece of hardware. You know, and so that's my point. When are we going to virtualize our programs of record and our warfighting applications and put them on our, our on MixNS? You know, I mean, I think that there's probably economies to scale to be gained there. We could probably save a lot of money in doing that. Um, and also, if you if you think if you project your thoughts into the battle space, into let's say the Western Pacific, west of the IDL, for instance, and we're on an island. It doesn't matter what island. Um, we need to be able to move quickly if we want to be able to employ C4 in the environment that our commandant is telling us we need to be ready to fight in. And so right now, the footprint that we put on the ground at the tactical edge of McSen S and McSen N, it's still pretty big, you know? And so a way to uh, improve in that area would be to virtualize our warfighting applications and our programs of record. And there's countless examples of, of programs that could go, go this route. Um, you know, the as a service model uh, being, being one of those really, really good examples. And so I've heard you mention a little bit about network convergence, and we've talked about that. Do you mean converging of the different classification of networks, or do you mean networks that process types of data or something different? Yes. <laughs> oh, I mean both. So, you know, think about everyone loves like practical, practical examples and, and examples that are in your everyday life always, I think, resonate because you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I know what he's talking about. So, I mean, think about your iPhone, for instance. Um, you start talking about network convergence. Um, right now, we still use single-channel radio. Um, once upon a time, we used analog Yes, phones. we do. You know, and I think, I think I was a first lieutenant in the Marine Corps in the early 2000s when we, when we went from analog switchboards, the old SB3614, to the – we had an SB3630, uh, you know, a, a digital switchboard, but then we went to Redcom. And we started to go to everything over IP, right? It fundamentally changed that particular occupational oh, field Redcom. Um, forever. And it's still, we're still voice over IP. But you talk about network convergence. Like what if I just had a device like an iPhone or Samsung Galaxy, and that was my voice video and data device. So that was my JWix hardware. That was my Mixen S hardware. And that was my Mixen N hardware. And I had a commercial solution for classified and a cross-domain solution where on the battlefield, I'm leveraging technology like 5G millimeter wave, radio area network, and MIMO. And now I'm using my actual device, something that can fit in my cargo pocket, right? Furthermore, you, you think about why you're, for network convergence, you think about like why you're attached to a, a tent, a combat operations center, for instance, right? The reason you're attached to that is because inside that tent are laptops that sit on a table with a big cable plant. And so we, we, you know, we put it in a tent for light discipline and everything else. 
think about the possibility of not even needing a tent anymore and how, how much more, if you had small form factor hardware and all your software, all your programs were virtualized on, on less hardware, how much more maneuverable you would be on the battlefield. And then the last thing I'd say is I love using iPhones as an example, you know, and, and uh, if somebody were to listen to this, po- this podcast on their way home from work in the car, in their car, and they were streaming it, on the cell phone tower and listening to it via Bluetooth in their, in their car. Right. And they pulled into the driveway of their house or into their garage, their phone, the software on their iPhone is so sophisticated. It senses a faster path, like more bandwidth in the Wi-Fi connection in your house. And it automatically cuts over to your Wi-Fi. That is the definition of network convergence. Um, you don't care as a user, what the path of that of uh, that compath is you don't care if it's fiber optic cable you just need it to work and so i think that there's a whole lot of uh space for us to develop technology inside our formations where we can leverage ideas like that i mean mimo radio area network and 5g uh, mimo or mimo radio area network and 5g millimeter wave would make that possible um, on the battlefield where you could potentially not need single channel radio anymore and so for the listeners real quickly, so Jason started off talking about he had the type of switchboards where if you wanted to talk to Kyle in another room, you had to ask the switchboard <laughs> operator to pull out a cable and click it into the Kyle spot. So plug he, it he, Jason's yeah, talking about right. going from that. That's right. Physically move wires for every phone call. He's talking physically about that's what the beginning around. of his career started with. <laughs> and he's talking about getting to a spot where we can be on some tablet device and do unclassified secret and top secret networks all from the same device and shrinking down all the hardware along the way. Um, that, that is a fairly, a bold jump in, uh, you know, a little over 20 years. Um, so we, we have definitely made some big changes. Yeah, for sure. I think that, um, you know, you're only as fast as the weakest link in the equipment string. And so there's still a lot of work to be done, this, you know, specifically on crypto modernization. You know, maybe we can get to a point where, um, you know, we get to two where 256 bit encryption is good enough. You know, and I, I think that obviously our, our military networks are, are targets for our adversaries in a steady state every single day. Um, we know that, but so is the stock market and other places and they don't use you know, bulk encryption and KG250Xs, they, they do it a, in a different way. And so um, I, I would just I would just advocate that we broaden our thinking a little bit. There's probably other ways that we can we can keep our network secure. And, and I think that there are other people out there that are also thinking along these lines. Yeah, and I'll double click on that for a second, because the thought about how we choose to encrypt and what is good enough encryption is a very interesting concept. And, and people in the civilian world argue about this all the time, and they usually do it through the lens of, you know, your PII or your banking data. But to that point, like nobody's sitting around with tack lanes and KG250s, like bumping KIVs to make sure that encryption happens between stock market exchanges or anything like that, right? And, but when we start talking about classified networks, um, the, the pucker factor increases dramatically for obvious reasons, right? Like losing money sucks, losing national security sucks more. That's right, yeah. <laughs> um, but I would venture to say that the security algorithms that we have in use in the commercial sector 
are likely, and I'm going to make a bold statement here right now, they are likely good enough to provide for that, assuming that we have the same physical control over the internetworks that connect classified networks. Again, I'm massively oversimplifying a very complex problem. But I think that it's, it's a bold statement to say, uh, a, a bold, just, and worthwhile exploring statement to say, my iPhone not only left my work network when I started to drive home, but hopped between 17 different cell towers on the way and then auto-negotiated with my local Wi-Fi in my home all encrypted the entire time, and I didn't notice a thing. Never dropped a packet, right? Always had the same quality of service. Was able to stream high-definition audio, make a phone call, browse the internet, text at a stoplight, whatever you want to call it, right? Like, all those things happened on that same device. It's not outside the realm of the possibility that we could get there with a military network. Absolutely. And I think that um, that's what we should be striving to do. I mean, we, we it is going to be technologically possible. It's just a matter of, right. you know... Um, we don't have infinite resources and, and, and we have to have a compelling enough argument um, for our senior leaders to consider spending the money that it'll take to get us there. So Jason, I'm going to pivot a little bit on you right here because I heard you wrote a paper recently and includes a really cool thing called Project Dynamis. And I want to ask you to bring our listeners up to speed on what this might be. Sure. So I wrote a paper called Project Dynamis. Um, you know, Dynamis stands for, Dynamis is Latin for potential power. You know, so if you think forward and the potential for where our networks could be that that's kind of where the idea came from, but it's a JADT2 accelerator, you know, and, and I would also say that it's a campaign of learning. Um, and so by that, I mean, um, you know, we have to raise the level of education about command and control systems, the C4 side of the comm mission and, and cyber as well. But, um, you know, there's a lot of change obviously happening in, in force design right now. And I would, I would argue that some of that change is necessitating material solutions and some of that change is necessitating non-material solutions when i was working uh in the jrock you know non-material solutions are typically left to the services to, sol to solve those are your dot mil pf change requests so think you want to reorganize a unit you want to change uh, the curriculum at a schoolhouse and on and on and on material solutions mean you want to buy something hardware usually but software as well um and so um, what I'm arguing in my paper is that we we do not have the equipment that we need right now to get the tactical uh, instantiation of Mixin S up to the level that it needs to be for that network to be a weapon system. So you know I'll I'll stop there. That's kind of the genesis behind it. But what I did was I took the JADC2 strategy and I cross referenced it with the Marine Corps uh, approved network modernization plan. And my reason for doing that was to find where there were areas of commonality because the NetMod, the NetMod plan has already been approved by the MROC and the Network Governance Board. And what I didn't want to do when I, when I left the Pentagon and went back to the FMF was, was reinvent the wheel. Um, we already have a pretty good plan inside of our community for where we, where we need to go. I call it an accelerator because, as you know, when you palm for any program, it's across the fitted. So from the point of origin, like when you come up with the idea for the thing that you need, the requirement that you have, to when it's actually going to show up on your doorstep is, is at, at least a seven-year process. Yeah, and obviously measured in a number of enlistments. Yeah, you could, you could re-enlist two times in there. You could PCS two or three times in there. And so um, I know I can't, you know, in the, in the operating forces or in the FMF, I know I can't fix every single problem down at that level. But what I can do is try my best to create feedback mechanisms to MAR4 Cyber, to DCI, to C4 about what works and doesn't work. And, and I could do that 
with fleet experimentation. And I just want to break in here real quick. There was a lot of acronyms and a lot of talk in there. I want to make sure I keep the listeners with us. So uh, real quick, when we talk about the MROC, the Marine Requirements Oversight Council, that is a Marine Corps level board, if you will, to validate and synchronize all of the things. And then when we talk about the NetMod plan, that is the DCI level plan that says how we're going to purchase and maintain and field C4, command control, computers, communications systems inside of the Marine Corps. And then uh, the FIDIP, the fiscal years defense program talks about essentially like your personal budget year over year over year so that you say, these are the things we're going to buy in what year and with this much money and this many quantities, et cetera. Um, so what Jason is saying is, hey, you, you need to work within the system that you're working in. So this is not a uh, shadow government or working outside of these plans, but rather informed by these plans uh, and addressing the Delta. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. And, and I think that, um, you know, the MROC is, is where you take big ideas, you know, that, that, that cost a lot of money. Um, the network modernization plan, I think, is I mean, it's the, it's the, I've, I've been in the Marine Corps for 24 years. We, we frankly haven't had, um, that, a, a, a plan that comprehensive and a vision that went that far out. Um, I think that my only, um, my only critique of the plan is, is maybe that last 5%. And so when you talk about McSyn S and you talk about McSyn N and you start off at Marfor Cyber and you work your way down to Marine Corps Cyber Operations Group and the network battalions, the regional presence of for the McSend, the plan is very specific. When you talk about how we're going to deploy this ubiquitous network into the operating environment with like division comm company or one of the comm battalions or one of the comm squadrons, I'd, um, what I'm arguing is that we don't have the program of record equipment right now, in my opinion, that we would need to be able to do that. For in, The reason I say that is if you just look at two uh, measures of effectiveness, bandwidth and latency being the two the two most important ones. Our trans our transport backbone, our wideband satellite terminals, for instance, don't have anywhere near as much enough bandwidth, and the latency in, ge in in geosynchronous orbit is so high that we can't we can't establish cloud at the tactical edge right now. We don't have the the, the C four backbone at that level on the battlefield to do that. It will work perfectly fine on fiber optic cable in, in the United States. But when we go forward, we need to pursue the technologies that we need in our equipment string in order to be able to use that same ubiquitous network, CIPRNET, for instance, at the tactical edge in our fighting position. Yeah, and I just want to add in here, too, that, uh, you know, John's personal opinion, uh, what Jason started at the beginning here is he wants to take and connect every shooter to every sensor so that we can essentially use machines to help us get through the OODA loop process faster. Uh, so I would add one, I don't think in Kyle parlance, there's a right click add to cart for that. And two, I don't think anyone's going to solve that problem in their MVP minimal, minimal viable product first level of software. This is going to be something that we're going to have to iterate through a bunch of times. So experimentation to even get started is probably a great step. Yeah, and, and I'll also add in that this has to be done iteratively because I think that there is the theoretical, I want to add every shooter to every sensor that can be done in a lab on a fiber optic cable or, you know, from 
Camp Lejeune to Pendleton or something like that, where you've got just super thick backbone that you can exchange speed of light, petabit scale, you can do it all. But you still have to solve the last mile problem, right? We, we see this in the real world, in the commercial sector every single day, right? You're on a small island in the South Pacific, or you are in you know the, the middle of Africa or Ghana, and you just don't have last mile fiber optic support. How do you increase the bandwidth? Do you push you know shipping containers full of storage and, and compute and you know GPU closer to those edges? Does that make more sense? Is it less effort to just increase the bandwidth via you know should you trade server racks for more VSATs? You know should you trade it for microwave? Should you trade it for Starlink connections? Like how do you go about doing this? And you have to start thinking a little bit outside of the box. I mean. Google was literally launching balloons over islands uh, off the coast of South America to help with like disaster relief and stuff. Because once you get subtropo, you can get really great line of sight to really fast things that can shoot across the horizon. But each of these things is a distinct and unique problem that we have to invest in. And the technology might not be there for us to get it to where you have, you know, gigabit connections to every shooter on the battlefield that can get done what they need to get done. Or maybe, maybe gigabit's not enough. Maybe there's just too many darn sensors that are out there that they need to connect to. Yeah, that's a lot that I agree with everything you just said. Um, it's a lot to unpack there, but first of all, yes, it, something like this is ambitious and it's going to take a lot, it's going to take a lot of effort. Resources have to be aligned, which is the kind of the impetus behind writing a paper about it is, yep, absolutely. you got to, you got to formulate your idea um, and, and make a compelling argument, but I'll start with one really good example that's not tactical. And then I'll give you a tactical example, um, because they're both, they're both relevant, right? We, we like practical examples. I don't know what year this started. Uh, my dad used to work for Ford motor company up in Dearborn, Michigan, when he retired from Marine Corps. Um, but it's been decades uh, that you have taken your personal vehicle to the Ford dealership. And when you take it there and you're like, Hey, something's wrong with my vehicle. I can't quite tell what it is. The first thing they do is they plug that thing into the computer. They hook it up to diagnostic equipment and they tap into all the electronic control units inside your personal vehicle. And then the computer starts to analyze what's wrong with it. Those, every one of those ECUs is a sensor. So I only bring that up as an example because think about a, an MTBR, a seven ton, for instance. If you had sensors on that vehicle like you have on your POV, and maybe there are, I'm, I'm not an, I'm, I am not an expert on the, on the MTBR, but if there were, say, 200 sensors on that vehicle, imagine what we could use the data that came off of that vehicle through some sort of 5G millimeter wave connection to the NipperNet and we start to collect that data, how much better and more efficient our maintenance processes would be. Um, we don't have anything like that right now. I mean, I'm pretty sure that the vehicle pulls into the, the bay and our motor transport marine mechanics get on the vehicle and they diagnose it themselves. And they, they do have some diagnostic equipment, but I just use that as a very basic example. Um, my tactical example would be, my favorite one is the F-35. Um, that thing is a flying supercomputer. Um, I, and, and I venture to guess that the F-35 has so many sensors on it that that thing could take off and fly around for, let's just use a round number, like 60 minutes, like one hour, um, and probably collect terabytes of data. So what I would suggest is that we don't have a network that can move terabytes of data around right now. Um, anybody that's ever deployed to Al-Assad or Camp Leatherneck um, with the media drive out there knows what I'm talking about. When you right click, copy, paste, <laughs> four terabytes um you know, i love that so we just threw it back to the the movie drive 
Yeah, so it's a practical example, and any Marine that's my age or, or you know, would they that resonates with them. But you have the F thirty five, and you know, let's use an, let's use an ex, uh, expeditionary advanced base operations as an example. Let's say I was going to fly an F thirty five in, in, into an EABO to FARP um, to refuel and rearm. You know, I could put a taggers on that on that jet. I think uh, uh, Colonel Winters was telling me that you could refuel two F hot refuel two F thirty fives and with one taggers in twenty five minutes. I think the weakest link is still the network. How fast can you get that data off of that jet into the network? Manipulate the data, rework a targeting package, and get it to the air crew so the air crew could take back off. And you know, tactically, that's a graded event. How that jet does not, the safest place for that jet is in the air. We don't want the jet to be on the ground any longer than it needs to be. So right now, you know, the process we would use to get the data off the jet from the sensor into the network so we can make sense of that data is far too slow. There are way too many humans in the loop on that. And we could do better with, with more um, technology. 5G millimeter wave, for, for instance, you know, you can put radio on a glass glass substrate and you can move that data at 160 gigahertz off that jet using 5g technology um, we don't have anything like that but I, I just use it as an example for where is it you want the data you need the data you know it's not on the jet you need the data in the network so you can do what you need to do the data um, does that make sense yeah absolutely and I I've worked with a ton of companies that have this exact same problem each day, every day. Um, you know, land survey companies that are flying drones all over the place, but they have to do this for oil fields or they have to do it for, you know, land surveys in places that they're building new developments or new refineries and things like that. And, you know, you can fly a drone with a huge sensor array package all over the place and pull terabytes of data off of it, but you're in the middle of nowhere or you have to like drive in rural Nebraska to the local Motel 6, which might have DSL at best, and you've got to move terabytes of data. And so the biggest logistical constraint that that limited these companies from getting the data, processing it, and getting it back to the customer was how long it took the human in the truck to drive somewhere where the bandwidth was good enough. And what year is this, Kyle? This, this is this 2023 2022 yeah i mean i i haven't done oil and gas this year yet but give it time <laughs> <laughs> yeah because probably that's where all the processing compute that you need right. for all of that data is not not in the air flying in a because because weight and heat and power are bad yeah, things all these things in the air. and the, the old joke is you know never underestimate the bandwidth of a ups truck and, and it holds true and you've got this age-old now constraint of do you move more compute storage and processing forward you know more weight more power more things that can go wrong or do you increase the bandwidth speed and move more of it back where you're reliant upon that data getting there? And then you've got to worry about things like how do you manage compression and how are you doing enhanced metadata? How can you limit every byte of data that you have to send back? Eliminate it, you know, and, and we get into edge computing restrictions. We get into uh, AI platforms and uh, ML boards and different things that you can put at the edge that can make more sense of that data so that you don't have to ship as much of it back. This is the, the ebb and the flow where you got to develop technology in each of these realms. And by increasing one or 2% in each of them, the, the cumulative effect is massive. Yeah. I think Kyle, I think the way I would describe what you just said is that what you just described is like a, a, a little bit of art and a little bit of science. Oh yeah. You know, and it's, so as we, 
cloud enable McSyn S at the tactical edge, for instance, and in, in say like an infantry battalion in, in, in an EABO or something like that, or the MAOC from the control group, you start to talk about, okay, now it's cloud enabled. If it's service oriented architecture is the backbone of that network, which is what our network modernization plan says that it's going to be. Now we can start having some interesting questions about like, where will the infrastructure as a service and the platform as a service be hosted physically? Back in CONUS right. at the network battalion? Right. Or will it be on-prem? And I think the answer is, it depends on the application, you know? And so as we start to talk about DDIL, I need the, whatever that warfighting application or program of record it is, I need that to be able to function in an intermittently connected, disconnected environment. That's right. Even if I have a ton of bandwidth and I'm not in a limited bandwidth environment, <clears throat> at a minimum, I'm going to disconnect the network sometimes on purpose in order to be survivable. So, you know, I'm going to shut my wideband satellite terminal off so that I don't become a catcher's mitt for cruise missiles. Um, so that leaves the middle two acronyms in the denied, disconnected, intermittently connected, limited bandwidth environment. That still leaves me in an environment where I'm disconnected or intermittently connected. And so I think that is the art of the conversation that you're describing is like, okay, well, we'll have to talk, we'll have to talk those through one by one, you know, and do I need to host GCSS Marine Corps on-prem? Probably not. Right. Do I need to host an exchange server on-prem? Probably yes, <laughs> maybe. Um, O365, mm, you know, that's a tough one. It's not designed to work in a disconnected, right. connected environment. But we've got to go through, we've got to step through all those one by one. And I think that's why virtualizing all these things is so important. All right. So Jason, we talked about this earlier on as well, and I want to bring it back because I think we could probably talk about this particular issue for the next four or five hours. But you mentioned data centricity earlier. Can you dive a little bit into what you mean by that, especially in relation to Dynamis and, and the topics that we're talking about? Absolutely. So, you know, I, the, the best way I could think to describe it is McSyn S is a weapon system. And Lieutenant General Reynolds used to say that all the time. And I will openly admit to the world that I didn't quite understand what that meant when she used to say that um, when I was when I was a younger officer. Um, I'm not saying it was cliche. I just don't think I understood the depth of what she truly meant by that. And I think I have a better understanding of it now. Five, you know, data for all intents and purposes into the future. Data will be the five, five, six round of the future. Um, what I mean by that is technology is going to enable us to close kill chains on live Cipernet. It, it, that's the best way I could think to describe it. Um, the sensing, the making, and the making sense is going to happen on live Cipernet. And while we may still use hardware to kill, uh, you know, suppress, neutralize, or destroy our adversaries, um, most of that kill chain can happen inside of live Cipernet, or maybe even JWIX one day if if it become, if we get to a point where we we only go down to one network, but. Um, the point still remains the same, which is data centricity is about weaponizing that data. You know, first you've got to get it where you need it. You've got to aggregate it. You need to federate all your authoritative data sources so that they're all feeding into the same engine. And then you can start to manipulate that data and do what it is you need to do with it. And Jason, I think I would add here, it depends on the fight, right? So you were talking about Sipper and JWIC, so secret, top secret. Um, it could very well be some other network because if we're fighting with uh, some kind of other partner or we have some kind of weird circumstance it could be a network that's neither of those 
Oh, for sure. And and, and one of the they used to call them um, minimum viable products when I was still when I was still working uh, in the Pentagon. But I think they call them critical core uh, enablers or core enablers now. I think is what is what they're referring to them as. But mission partner environment, the network that they're developing for coalition and joint partners um, is a great example of what you're talking about, John, which is it doesn't doesn't necessarily matter what network. It's just a network. Yeah. And I think all the stuff that you put out kind of like, do we know what our data is? How are we structuring it? How are we making it available? Like getting good at all that, those data centricity, uh, to use your word, uh, concepts agnostic of the network that you're going to go in or knowing, Hey, whatever you're planning for very well may change. I would imagine that is at the heart of what we're looking to do. Yeah, absolutely. So Jason, can you talk us through, so we talked the concepts of how we're going to get there and some of the different nuances there. Talk me through how in your mind, Dynamis is going to be structured and and how you're planning on getting after this. Sure. So, you know, my goal is to set up a JADT2 lab and, and, and there, you know, so we have, um, I mean, in some cases, you know, starting, it might need to be a closed network, but um, you know, I'm, I'm communicating with Macog and, you know, ultimately this is about MixNS, you know, make no bones about it. Um, but yeah, in terms of how uh, Project Dynamis is structured, you know, there's a lot of different technology insertion and IT capabilities um, that'll deliver parts of the, of the I plan and the net mod plan uh, to the Marine Corps. So, you know, as it's, as it's clarified in the net mod plan, all these investments have to be synchronized, you know, and they have to be delivered with effects uh, by, with, and through is what it says by, with, and through the mix sense. And so, you know, I would say in that whole, that old adage, like first do no harm, you know, uh, Mixin is going to be our weapon system. And so whatever I do, it's got to be additive or complementary to the Marine Corps' uh, Cipernet. So there's a bunch of synchronization and overlapping when I compared the documents. But, you know, I think that I tried to break my paper up into four lines of operation. You know, one is to des- uh, number one is you know design test and evaluate a modernized disaggregated C4 network you know comprised of those MVPs that they talk about in the in the uh, I plan and the reference architecture those are your like core enabling capabilities that I was referring to um, second is we just we just hit on this we've got to aggregate the data you know it's the data like on F35 the data is on the jet in order to do stuff to the data you got to get it off the jet and into a network pick a network you know, but it's got to be on the network if we're going to run algorithms and big data analytics and machine learning on it, right? Um, so aggregate that dis- disparate data in the cloud in accordance with uh, the DoD data standards, that, which is what they call the data fabric. Um, then number three is we've got to federate existing authoritative data sources and streams in the cloud. You know, those are all your, those, those authoritative data sources are like, for instance, Marine Corps Total Force System, uh, you know, which which has like, Marine Online and all these things that we use, th- those are all, you know, behind that is a da- our databases and those are authoritative data sources. <clears throat> and then last but not least, I mentioned this in the, in the opening, we've got to improve C4 literacy. And John, we were chatting about this before we started, you know, comms, comm can't just be someone else's problem. You know, command and control is a warfighting function and we, we need to demand more of the average Marine um, comm can't just be someone else's problem. And so we just, we need to do a better job of, of, of elevating everybody's understanding from just basic fundamentals to something a little bit more sophisticated. If we're going to be, 
the truly the varsity uh, force that we're describing here. So I'll stop there for just a sec. And Jason, before you get into any details here, I do want to ask you a question on cloud. So you mentioned several times cloud being a, a key emphasis here. For you, what is the critical capability that cloud is going to bring that maybe we wouldn't have without it? Or what do you think that that accelerates? So I think the most, maybe I'll answer it in reverse. Uh, cloud is absolutely uh, a critical requirement for JADC2. Like it, it, if there is one critical requirement for JADC2 to succeed, it's cloud. And because of that, I, the, the reason I say that is because the technologies, those minimum viable products, um, core enabling capabilities that, that I was describing a second ago are things like zero trust architecture. Uh, identity credential access management, so ICAM, DevSecOps, um, AI and machine learning is the long-term goal for how we're going to close kill chains. Everything I just said requires cloud. So, like I, I you know, I, when when I had my meeting a couple of days ago uh, in the Pentagon, we were talking about just that. I can send Marines to the software factory that we're about to open. Their their weapon system when they graduate from the Marine Corps software factory is not just the network, it is a cloud-enabled network. You cannot conduct DevSecOps without cloud. It's a critical requirement. It happens in the cloud. It's service-oriented architecture. So software, platform, and infrastructure as a service all happen in the cloud. And so I like the software factor because I'm kind of using that, at least mentally for myself, as a right lateral limit. And I'd say I'm on the clock right now, you know, in terms of how much time do we have to get the network cloud enabled? Well, if the fit up seven years, we know that we're going to be graduating Marines from the software factory a lot faster than seven years. Um, and so we could put those Marines on a closed network that's cloud enabled, but ultimately we want the network to be cloud enabled. And so um, I like to describe it like this. So our commandant talks about the need for manned unmanned teaming in force design. And, 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 and he, he describes what, you know, what, what it is that means and, and why we need that. In order to do teamed unmanned teaming, you need artificial intelligence and machine learning. That's how teamed unmanned teaming works. Loyal wingman program is a good example in the Air Force in particular. So in order to be able to leverage artificial intelligence and machine learning, I need cloud. So if you back that argument from the, the, the problem backwards, um, and you dissect that step by step, you know, it goes from manned unmanned teaming back one step to artificial intelligence and machine learning and back one more step. And I need cloud to do that. And so my network, if it's not cloud enabled, I'm never going to get to the end state that, that the general describes. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I definitely think it does. Uh, I, I am sure for some of that stuff, we would be able to deliver some of those things. Uh, some or or maybe all, uh, you know, on-prem, whatever. But I would definitely agree that to be able to do it with any type of relative speed at the types of wickets you're talking about hitting, yeah, cloud is probably going to be a critical requirement to make that happen. Kyle, you have any thoughts here? I think that if you don't invest in the ability for you to hyperscale up the software that you're going to write, and figure out a common operating platform from which to run that where you're not having to learn. Like I just, I'm so, I hate the idea that we're teaching people how to install exchange servers these days. Do you know what I mean? Like that may be an oversimplification, but just that's the power of this, I think, to support something like 
Project Dynamis to support something like JADC2 in the future, to support something like a software factory and the convergence of all those things, right? Like Marines coming out who can get on a keyboard and create from scratch the software that you need to link API X to API Y or like sensor to shooter in some way, shape or form in a new and novel way that gives you a competitive advantage in the battlefield is not or should not be linchpinned on the fact of like, did I install the exchange server correctly so that I can email the code to somebody else like that? It, it, there is a fundamental, like painful reality to that, that I just want to, I want to encourage us all to avoid. I, I don't know if that a different interpretation, maybe, but I think we're going to the same end. Okay, excellent. Uh, so Jason, talk me through a little bit more details here on how you're specifically tackling these, these big, uh, big major lose that you talked about. Yeah, so I talked about, um, you know, the first one is, is modernizing the C4 network for the DDL environment. So obviously, when you start talking about DDL, that's a different, that's a different requirement than what you would use the network for at, say, you know, Marine Corps based Quantico or, um, you know, Marine Corps based Camp Pendleton. Because the environment's going to, you know, the, your adversary is going to put you through the paces and it's not just going to be 40 gig or 100 gig fiber optic cable everywhere. You, you've got to be able to to maneuver on the battlefield, right? And so, if you if you break down that DDL acronym, like I talked earlier, and you say you know denied, disconnected, intermittently connected, limited bandwidth environment, and you think about some really basic stuff. If I had something like Satcom as a managed service, um, Starlink, Viasat MMT, Kymeta LMT, something like that, and I paid enough money on that contract. I don't have a limited bandwidth environment. I mean, I can have as much bandwidth as I want. It's a it's 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 bandwidth on demand. So if I want 200 meg downlink, then I can get 200 meg downlink. So I like to say that lops off the L and DDL. You know, in that case, I wouldn't have a limited bandwidth environment, right? And then that takes me to the left side of the acronym. You know, for years and years and years, the last 20 years, my generation being guilty of this for sure. We've set up wideband satellite terminals deployed in combat operate during combat operations where we never turn the thing off. You know, I, you know, we we set the terminal up and it stays on 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. We're not hard targeting for anything because our adversaries had no SIGINT capability. So there was no need to worry about them direction finding our antenna and potentially shooting indirect fire at us or something like that, right? And so today we need to think more like an attack submarine. You know, an attack submarine, how, do, how does an attack submarine operate when it comes to comm? Well, they use TACSET, TACSET and MCON. You know, they, when they're down under the water, um, they're on low, very low frequencies and mostly voice comms, right? When they have data to transmit, they, they surface, they throw a buoy out and they bulk, tra they bulk transmit whatever OPTAS comms, OPTAS link, whatever they need to send. And then they go, they, they pull that, that, that antenna in and they live to fight another day. They submerge again and then they come back when they and un, when they have their next comm window. We should think about comm on the ground like that. And the interesting thing is that's how we teach our Marines in the schoolhouse. We're taught to set the ant farm up, the antenna farm up, you know, a couple clicks away from where the command post is. I think we've just kind of gotten spoiled or lazy, you know, whichever term you want to use over the last couple of decades. And we've gotten away from doing that. But that leads well, me to the, the last couple of wars haven't needed us to do it. That's the problem. That's correct, yeah. But if you look at what's happening in Ukraine with the between the Russians and the Ukrainians and hypersonic missiles and keying out on a single channel radio only to 20 minutes later 
have a hypersonic missile shot at you, I think that's probably a better comparison to what we would face if we if we were facing a, a peer threat ourselves. And so that kind of leads me down to, you know, the importance of transport infrastructure and cloud. I, I, we already hit on cloud, so I won't hit, I won't repeat that. But um, you'll hear a lot of people talk about LPI and LPD, low probability of intercept, low probability of detect. If you turned your wideband satellite terminal off, I would I would argue that's no probability of intercept and no probability of detect. So I like to call it MPI and MPD. And then at, that leads me to my middle, my, the middle of that acronym, which is disconnected, intermittently connected environment. So we, we hit on, we, we, we chatted about this a couple minutes ago, but as I virtualize software, I can start to have those art and science conversations, blending those conversations with, okay, what, what particular service on the network are we talking about right now? Okay. Exchange server, for instance. Okay, well, if that's going to be hosted in the tactic in, in 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 cloud, do you want it to be in the tactical instantiation of your network? Do you want it to be in the regional instantiation of your network, or do you want it to be at Macog at the enterprise level instantiation of your network? You know, and those are the those are the conversations that well, I think we'll eventually find ourselves having. But you know, I think if you if in terms of technology alone, the transport and the infrastructure. Um, the NetMod plan does a very, very good job describing the future state and what that looks like. But I would say what I'm what I'm trying to get after is um, the tactical edge, the comm companies, the comm battalions, the comm squadrons, and the equipment that they use to install, operate, and maintain the local instantiation of MixNS. So um, you know, satellite is a managed service. Uh, we're, we're experimenting with that. Free Space Optics is now a program of record now in the operating in, in the FMF, um, and then 5G radio array network, millimeter wave, and MIMO. I think are technology those three technologies in particular we're really going to need to try and leverage in the Marine Corps. That makes perfect sense. And I want to, as we're getting relatively short on time here, I definitely want to hit on one thing that I found fascinating that you and I had talked about previously was about educating the force. Can you talk to me a little bit more about one, how you came to that as one of the pillars that you're working on, and then how you plan on approaching that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm not picking on anybody when I say this, but I just, you know, this has been my experience my whole career. Um, you know, you remember this, <laughs> you let, you led with this. I taught the, I taught the comm package at the basic school and there's, unless it's changed when I was an SBC, a BOC company has roughly 1,650 hours in the program of instruction over the course of the six months that they're at the basic school. They, and I'm dated, that was 2004 to 2007, but at that time, we taught one one-hour class on the podium about comm, and then you got some, you got some practical application uh, in, the, in LZ7 where you had to uh, bring your camp stool and learn how to uh, install, operate, maintain and defend a uh, prick 117 or back then it was a prick 119 you had to learn how to fill the radio with crypto pick the proper antenna for the operational scenario and then get it all to work and talk to your your fellow officer sitting 10 feet uh to your right or your left right that was it yeah so staggeringly never, basic yeah i would never sit here and advocate that we should you know a hundred hours of the program of instruction at the basic school should be calm but if you fast forward i also I, I both went to EWS resident school and have been teaching EWS non-resident for the last close to 15 years now. There are 
there are that I know of no comm classes at career level school. And certainly it probably wouldn't be appropriate necessarily to have comm classes at command and staff and top level school. Right. And so the education of the, of the, uh, of each officer is very, very minimal, minimal. Um, and I would argue that we just don't, we don't have that luxury anymore. We don't live in a world where we can afford to, um, just kind of outsource all knowledge about comm to the comm community. Um, case in point, um, you know, we all learn how to call nine lines. Uh, we all learn about the six functions of logistics and the, uh, in Marine Corps aviation and, 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 the min, and many other very important things. It's not a contest about which one's more important. It's just that we're living in 2023 now where technology is prevalent in every single aspect of your life. Um, you know, a good friend of mine wrote a, wrote a paper called, you know, basically the, 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 the theory was every Marine's a technologist. If you think about your personal life, that's pretty true. You know, the average Marine is no different than the average civilian. When the iPhone 14 comes out, we line up with everybody else at the mall at the Apple store waiting for the new phone so we can buy it. So in our personal lives, we, we embrace technology. I think in some cases, you know, it's, it's, it depends on the person, but the average Marine, I think, doesn't embrace technology enough. And when I say that, I mean, they, that's in acknowledging that technology is important and being willing to learn about it are not the same thing. You can acknowledge that it's important. Are you willing to learn about it? Those those aren't the same thing. So we need more people that are willing to learn about it. You know, the software factory is gonna gonna help us with that, I think. And but uh, across every program of instruction in the Marine Corps, um, I think that we could probably stand to to take a look at that. Yeah, I, I obviously agree a hundred percent. As the whole premise of this podcast was, we wanted to give a chance to educate the force. So uh, I, I want, I love that. That is a huge pillar of your uh, success here. That is really exciting for me, and uh, I, I definitely agree. We do need to put a lot of time there. When you think about the amount of time we spend in our day uh, being more efficient and more effective with technology, that's one of the biggest improvements we can make in the Marine Corps. So and that can be both in lethality specifically or in all of the administration getting more efficient so we can spend more time and cycles and energy on lethality. Either way you look at it, uh, being better educated in this kind of stuff, especially on the technology side, will be huge. Yeah, I'd like to add one thing to that. Um, the software factory is in the front of everybody's brain because we're recruiting Marines to go go through uh, the the program down there with Lieutenant Colonel Bach. Um, you know, think about just the comm community in general. You know, if go back to what we talked about a couple minutes ago with network convergence, you know, I like to use a scan eagle as an as an example, right? What's a scan eagle operator? You know, it's a rhetorical question. It's an 0311 most of the time, right? Um, they don't get a, they don't get a Marine to come operate the scan eagle for them. We give the scan eagle to our young O311s and you know maybe O36, O331s, and they just have to figure it out. Um, we're going to graduate Marines from the software factory, and they're going to have that MOS, and they're going to get to the fleet. And we don't have any sort of data science capability in the Marine Corps. So that may be another thing to think about, maybe a potential master's degree program at MPS for officers and staff and COs. Maybe it becomes something we could send you know, I just took a class uh, last summer uh, at Cal Berkeley, just out of curiosity, uh, on my own dime to go learn about data science. And I'll tell you, 
It was about Jupyter Notebooks. It was about Python. We had to do some basic coding. Um, so I throw that out there as, as, a, as a point to consider because if we have Marines graduating from the software factory but don't have an officer corps that knows how to employ them, then where are we going to be? Um, we will be reliant on them for the ideas, the implementation of the ideas, the writing of the code, and we won't have anyone else that understands how to employ these Marines. And, and you, could, you could probably make a case that that's kind of dangerous. Um, it doesn't right. have to be an officer. It could be staff and COs. It could be senior sergeants, but we need a data science capability. Yeah. And so two, a couple of things I'll add. One, uh, 0311 is an infantry Marine. A Scan Eagle is a unmanned aerial uh, platform that they operate. And then uh, clarification, I do believe we do have some data scientists. Uh, I'm sure I'm going to mess this MOS up, but I think it's 2653. That is a very relatively new thing. Um, so kudos to the Intel community for standing that up. I haven't checked in on that in a minute, um, but I think we at least do... The, the Intel community has said like, ooh, this is going to be a thing. We're going to start having data scientists. And, but I agree with your overall point of like, ooh, uh, we, we need to get on that, especially as we really, through in great initiatives like the Software Factory, start to produce copious amounts more of relevant data. We're going to need the technical expertise that comes with what to do with that afterwards. Yeah. I'll also add that you're basically talking about making your software and the people who write your software into a weapon system, right? It may not yes. be a kinetic weapon system, but it is designed to get battlefield effects, right? It is a weapon system. You would never field a weapon system to somebody who doesn't know the capabilities of that weapon system, right? You, you don't just give a brand new style of bomb to somebody and then tell your forward air controller, ah, it blows up. You can figure that crap out. You have to educate the people who are going to employ those weapon systems and what their capabilities are. And this is a complicated thing because the capability is kind of like, uh, whatever you want it to be, whatever they can make. And while I'm, you know, again, <laughs> yeah. super oversimplification there, but I cannot agree enough with that statement. We have to educate our officer corps and our senior staff and CEO corps around what this can do for them in a battlefield what type of kinetic outcomes this can achieve or what type of neutralizations or, you know, pick your particular battlefield effect that you want to have can be achieved through the use of software and the software that does not exist today that will be created by some Lance Corporal in the, the fight. And that, that concept alone is incredibly unique and new and, I don't know, mind-blowing. This is a paradigm shift of how to think about how to employ software. Yeah, for sure. And maybe a, maybe a, we can end on this on a good note. I, I, um, I just sat through the MMEA roadshow and, you know, we've sent a lot of Marines from third mall, not all communicators either from across the flight line, like up and down the different squadrons, the different, uh, multiple mags, uh, comm Marines, uh, air defenders, you name it. We've sent Marines to power BI training at Microsoft in La Jolla and, you know, MMEA, has they were just out on the roadshow briefing us about how they're using Power BI in talent management, which was really exciting for me to see. And then, you know, they talked about um, data science. They didn't call it data science, which goes back to the education piece, but in the Marine Corps Installation and Logistics Enterprise 2030 document that just got published, they also talked about the importance of data, data offboarding, and what to do with that data, um, which is just another prime opportunity to use something like Power BI. But um, yeah, you just, we got to send range of training and then we, we got to get people, uh, improve, increase people's awareness of it and improve their vernacular so that we're using the right terms and we're all talking the same language.
Kyle, we have hit that time. Hit us with our hot take. Ah, this is a unique episode that I feel like we've been hitting nothing but hot takes, but I'm going to try to round something out here. I want everyone listening to this cast, if you have a few minutes to sit down in front of a computer and you're not listening to this on your drive, we're going to link to uh, Jason's article right in the top of the show notes. Please go read it. Um, I want to just call out how I appreciate the fact that we are researching unique ways to apply the technology that we already have and trying to think through in the future how we can apply the technology better. Because like we talked about earlier, there are distinct problem sets that need to be solved. And and I know that everyone just wants to hit all of these nails with one hammer at once and say, like, I have found the solution to all of the problems. When the reality is that there are going to be many, many, many solutions that all have to come together to have a demonstrable difference in the outcome that we are trying to achieve with regard to cyber application in modern warfare. And that's probably a terrible way to describe this. But, you know, I'm just glad, Jason, that you're thinking through this at a logistic level for JADC2. I also hope that somebody somewhere is trying to make a better, faster microwave dish or a satellite terminal or a Starlink terminal or something, because, again, there's so many elements to this that need to be solved. And just remember that no matter what happens, all the listeners out there, like solve one problem and you're making this thing a better place. Thanks, Kyle. Dear listeners, thanks for joining us. You can connect with us on social media by going to Twitter and following at USMC underscore Task Force Phoenix. That's USMC underscore T-F-P-H-O-E-N-I-X. Our editor is Sarah Clarkson, and marketing support is provided by Jake Osborne. You can support the cast by going to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a five-star review and accompanying comment. And with that, we are out.